Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as the father disciplines the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. There we go. Thank you. Finally, somebody. All right. Rules. Lots and lots of rules today. Kids, I've got a question for you today. Have your parents told you that you have to eat all of your vegetables and clean your plate if you want to get ice cream for dessert? Anybody ever heard that? Husbands, have your wives told you that? Okay, all right. <clears throat> so there's one rule, all right? Adults, here's another couple of rules for you. Driving down the road, you see a big sign that says, click it or ticket, telling you to click your seatbelt or you're going to get a ticket. You're going to pay a fine. Another one would be driving through a school zone and you see a sign that says 25 miles an hour. And then right below it, you see a sign that was added below it that says photo enforced. Okay? Or you see a big construction zone sign and in bright orange at the top it says fines doubled in the construction zone. So the issue is we have these rules that we're supposed to follow because they're good for us. They're good for other people. I should eat my vegetables because they are good for my body. They're going to help my brain develop. They're going to keep me awake. Okay? I shouldn't want to speed through a school zone because I don't want to hit children. I shouldn't want to speed through a construction zone because there's heavy equipment moving in and out, and I don't want to slam into it. I should put my seatbelt on because it's going to save my life in an accident. So these laws, these rules are designed to help keep me safe. But the rule in and of itself is not enough. I've said over and over and over again, I'm going to speed, I'm going to zip through it, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. So the rule, for rule's sake, wasn't enough. So what do we do? We add some other consequence to that rule. And that's where we're at today. We're going to see the Israelites have the rule, they have the law, and it wasn't enough. And so they're going to add more to it today. We're going to talk about what it means to have that law, what it means to want to follow God 
and how that has changed for the Israelites. We're going to see their pattern of belief, unbelief, sin, following God, not following God, that roller coaster that we've seen all the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. The last several months we've been doing this, and we have seen this just up and down, up and down. In fact, last week, we talked in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, we talked about the fact that the leaders, so Ezra and Nehemiah and, and other leaders of Israel, have really brought this fact out to the people, to the Israelites. And they've recognized this pattern that they had, and they said, okay, wow, we need to repent. And so they go through this big, long process where first and foremost, they recognize who God is. They recognize his faithfulness in their lives. They recognize that he is just and merciful. They recognize that they love him and they praise him for that over and over and over again. And then towards the end of the chapter, they finally confess their sins. And they confess it not just in a small way, like, hey, God, I've, I've sinned and I'm sorry. They confess it in a very large way. God, we recognize the pattern of sin that we as a people have had. They confess the sins of their previous generations. They confess the sins of their current families. They confess the sins of them individually. So there's this national confession. And then the cycle starts all over again. And so hopefully if you've been watching this cycle over the last several, uh, several weeks, you've probably have seen two key themes that would be kind of the break points or the things that are really the root cause of Israel turning away from God. That first break point was talked about in Ezra chapter 9, the mixed marriages with all of these other nations, all of the other peoples. And it wasn't a fact that they were mixing with other people. It was a fact of what it was doing, what the Israelites were allowing that to do. When they would marry somebody from another nation, from another system of beliefs, from another religion, they were bringing that in and allowing it to corrupt them, allowing it to turn them away from God. So that's that first break point. The second break point we then see a little bit later in Nehemiah chapter 5 that Tom talked about a few weeks ago where greed had really settled in and the rich are taking advantage of the poor. They're charging them exorbitant interest. They're not forgiving debts. They're just piling on and piling on and making, it to a, making them to a point where they just are never going to get out from under that. And it's causing animosity and division amongst families, amongst neighbors, amongst friends. So these two things, the mixed marriages and the, the greed, have really been the root of what's causing a lot of the Israelites' problems right now. And the Israelites, to their credit, recognize this. They say, we get it. We understand. In fact, in, in chapter 8, they have the law read to them. Remember, this is a new generation of Israelite. This is a new generation of people who are moving back into Jerusalem that for centuries had been under oppression, under exile, okay? And now they're moving back. And we've seen several decades of this happening and they're rebuilding. But even the priests didn't know the law. They hadn't been taught the law, so they have to be retaught the law. So in chapter 8, we see everybody is finally getting the law 
At the end of chapter 8, in verse 12, it says they had a great celebration because they understood the words that were explained to them. So there's kind of this national aha moment. This national moment of, wow, we get it. New generations of people who had never heard the law before, new generations of people who'd never lived under the law, who had never worshipped at the temple, are now doing that and getting it and understanding it. And so they're saying, something needs to be different. But what is it? What is it that needs to be different? What, what is going to change? What, they're looking at it saying, I, we see this pattern, and we want to break that cycle. We want to break that pattern. We want to be different. We want to do it differently. So that's where we pick the story up today. It's the very last verse of chapter 9. So chapter 9, verse 38, okay? So chapter 9, verse 38 reads, In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. So you remember all the way back to the beginning of this series, we talked about King Cyrus. And he made a decree that was going to help the Israelites get back to Jerusalem he was going to help pay for it. He was telling everybody this is a good thing. And it was so important, he wrote it in stone. He wrote it down. And remember, when you write it down in these days, it doesn't get changed. So the Israelites are taking a page from the, the king's book and saying, we're going to create a document and we're going to affix our seal to it. And in these days, a seal was you had a ring or stamp or something that was always kept with you and, and on your person. And it would be hot wax, and you would put your seal on that. So that was like your signature. It was a way that people knew that you agreed to that. And so that's what they're doing. They're creating a document. And they're saying, we're going to put this in writing. In the past, just as a nation, they had said, oh, this is, this is bad. We need to repent. We're going to repent. We do repent. And, and we're going to do better. But this time, they're saying, we're going to take this a step further. We're going to put this in writing. We are going to take this and we are going to say, we take this seriously. And so what they do is they have this document created and all of these leaders, the next 27 verses, the first part of chapter 10 is all of the people who are sealing this document. It starts with the governor, Nehemiah himself. And then there's some of the Levites, some of the priests, and then a bunch of the, uh, the family heads, and they all affix their seal to this. And then in verse 28 of chapter 10, you see everybody else jump on board. So verse 28 says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singer, uh, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey God. Those are the other people who are agreeing to this document, to this written document. They are looking at this, and this is a vow. <clears throat> They're saying, we agree to this that our leaders have just signed. We also partake. We also commit that we will hold our families and our individuals, our people, accountable to this. And then you say, okay, well... What is it that they're going to be held accountable to? And that's verse 29. It says, join with their noble brothers. So all of these people, 
all of these leaders, everybody together, are going to join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and the statutes of the Lord our Lord. So basically what they're saying is we're going to commit to the law. No different than what they've done in previous generations. Every generation has said, oh, we're going to rededicate ourselves to the law. The only difference this time is they're putting in writing. The only difference this time is that it seems to be a national movement in a way that maybe it wasn't before. And then what they do is they add to it. Because somewhere along the line, somebody had this great idea. Hey, we have the law, and we haven't been able to uphold it and adhere to it, so let's add some more stuff to it. Let's do something extra. And somebody said, brilliant, we failed miserably the first 12 times. Let's make it even more difficult. And that's where we're at today is we're seeing what they're going to add to this. So this vow is not just, hey, we're going to adhere to the law. They see those two breakpoints. They see the things that, that have really caused them to stumble. And they say, we're going to call some stuff out specifically. So when you read verse 30 through 39, that's where we get that. It says, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. We will impose the following commands on ourselves. To give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel, and for all the work of the house of God. We will cast lots among the priests and Levites and people and for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times of each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. And we will bring the first fruits of our land and of every fruit tree of the house by the year. We will bring back the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as, prescribe, uh, as prescribed by the law. And we'll bring the first of, uh, of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, the priests who serve in, the God's, is who, who serve in, God, in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from the first batch of dough to the priests at the storehouse, storerooms of the houses of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offering of every fruit tree and every new wine and fresh oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect one-tenth of all of our agricultural towns. A priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth of the Levites, and the Levites are to take a tenth of this offering to the storeroom of the treasury in the house of our God. For the Israelites are the Lev and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and fresh oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the priests who ministers are, along with the gatekeepers and singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. Whew. So they've already got the Mosaic law, and now they're saying, we're adding all of this other stuff because, man, we have messed up in the past. We don't want to mess up again. So they kind of broke into two things. They said, first, we're not going to take wives of other nations. We're not going to give our sons to them 
for them to create kind of these alliances between the, the, the countries and bring peace. We're not going to do that because we know that that ends up in corrupting our religion and our worship of God, the holy God. So they do that first and foremost. And then they tackle the greed and say, hey, you need to start giving some stuff. The law already has a prescription for how we're supposed to give. But they go even further and they say, now we're going to break it out and we're going to add some more stuff in there. And different people need to give different things and it needs to be used for these specific things. Because again, they're looking at it saying, we haven't done it well in the past, so let's make it more descriptive. We didn't use our heart, okay, because the law was really designed to grab our heart. We didn't use our heart to worship God. We didn't do these things out of our love for God, out of our desire to see him glorified. We just looked at the law, or they looked at the law, and said, I've got to do these things, and if I don't do them well, then I've messed up. And so they just keep adding more and more and more. So that's where we get to this point is we have these, we have the original law, we have some clarification to the law in these nine verses, ten verses. We've got um, some, some additional descriptors of how we're supposed to use uh, or, or, or provide for some of the first fruits back to God and to God's house. And so the entire nation of Israel is saying, this is a good thing. We think this should cover it. We think this will help get us to where we want to be. And they are super excited about this. They're not looking at this as a bad thing. They're saying, we want some additional guardrails, some additional guidelines, some additional you know, uh, uh, rules and regulations to help us keep the ordinances and the commands of God. And they are super excited about it. They're so excited about it that verses, I mean, chapter 11 through the first part of, of chapter 12 uh, through verse 26 says that they are casting lots to decide who gets to live in Jerusalem. Who's going to repopulate Jerusalem? Because they look at Jerusalem as a symbol of their nation. And they're saying, we want to be a part of this new dawn, this new era for Jerusalem, for the Israelite nation. And they want to be a part of the group that is seen as holding those ordinances as sacred. And so they're super excited about this. And that's kind of where we start to end what we see in the New Testament as far as Israel is concerned. The next picture we get of Israel is about 400 years later. So they go through several other empires that take over during this period. The Hellenistic period is about 100 years. Uh, Jesus, once we start to see Jesus in the New Testament, they've been under the rule of Rome for about 80 or 90 years at this point. Okay. And so in 400 years, they've lived under this process. And Parker's going to talk about this next week. It didn't go well. Okay. And I want to show you, I want to skip ahead and show you how bad it got. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is looking at this, and he is not happy. So verses 1 through 4, Jesus is speaking to the crowd and his disciples. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. 
Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put themselves or put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. So what has happened is over this 400-year period, the law has just continued to grow and grow and grow. There is more and more and more added to it. And it has become not something that's pointing them to God. It has become a yoke that is too heavy to bear. The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests have just really used the law to beat people up. And they're not even following it themselves. They're all high and mighty. They're standing on their pillars and they're spreading all of the things that, they're, that, the, that the people are supposed to be doing. And in private, they're doing exactly the opposite. And Jesus is calling them out on it. It's been 400 years of just oppressive doing, doing the work or doing, uh, following the rules just for the rules sake. And being afraid of the consequence, not following the rule, not following the law, because you know it's going to point you to Jesus, to God. It's been, I'm following the rule because I don't want to have the ear or the, 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 um, the ire of, of a priest coming down on me. I don't want the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees. I don't want to have to deal with that. I don't want to feel like a failure. I don't want to be mocked in public. That's what they've had. It got so bad then in the next... Um, 24 verses, Jesus says to the, to the leaders, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He says that seven times in the next 24 verses. I mean, he just blasts them because of how bad it has gotten. The law has become something that is just simply too hard for them to bear. They are walking around with this burden on them that they could never possibly live up to. And it is no longer a way for them to be pointed back to God. Nobody living under the law is looking at it as, hey, this is great. It's helping me focus on God. It's helping me worship and glorify the Lord. They're looking at it as, this burden that they can never possibly get out from under. They're looking at it as I am just no good, I am horrible, and there is nothing that I could ever do that's going to change that. That's what the law has become. And Jesus in this passage is showing them that hypocrisy. And he's also showing them that the law is not sufficient. Through his death and resurrection, he will become the holy sufficient sacrifice that's going to take that burden off their shoulders. But we're not there yet. We'll get there, okay? But that's where they're at. So they're hoping, okay, they're hoping that they're going to be able to use the law and rededicate themselves and, and just, boy, worship God and things are going to be great. But we're going to see that that's not, not the case. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to challenge you today and say, when you think about your own life, when you think about the boundaries, the rules, the restrictions that you've put on yourself to help point you to Jesus, is that happening in your life? Think about the boundaries that you've got. Are they keeping you on the straight and narrow? Okay. 
you've said for yourself, I'm going to read my Bible every day. Okay, that's great. I would wholeheartedly <laughs> encourage that. But I'm going to ask you, are you reading the Bible because you think that's what's expected of you and you want Dave to think that's great? Are you reading your Bible because you want your kids to see you reading your Bible? Are you reading your Bible because you think that's going to make you better in the eyes of God? Or are you reading your Bible because the scriptures point to him? The scriptures point to God. The scriptures point to how we can commune with him. The scriptures point to his faithfulness. The scriptures point to his love and his grace and his endless mercy. That's why we should be reading the Bible. So those boundaries that you've given yourself, those things that you've put in place, those things that you look at and say, these are the things that I'm going to do to help me in my Christian walk, are they actually helping you in your Christian walk or are they just becoming a burden that you can't live up to? And ask yourself, if they're this burden that you can't live up to, why are you doing it? Maybe you don't need to do it. Right? I'm not advocating that you don't read your Bible every day. Don't, hear, don't, don't somebody come back and say, oh, Dave said we don't have to read our Bible because it doesn't lead us to, you know, it's too much of a burden. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? There may be some things that you've put in your life. There may be some rules, some, some boundaries that you've put in that you think are helping that are actually hindering you. I'm saying, ask yourself, what are those? <laughs> what about those rules and regulations that other people aren't following? Are you judging other people because you feel like they should be doing something? You feel like, well, this is the standard I've set for myself, and I would expect everybody to follow that same standard. So are you judging them for that, or are you giving them freedom and saying, something might be different, God might be working in their lives different, or I need this, I really struggle in this area, and I need some additional boundaries that maybe somebody else doesn't. So I would encourage you to ask yourself, why Am I looking outward at what somebody else is doing? This is part of what Jesus was talking about when he's talking to the, to the Pharisees and the hypocrites. He's saying, why are you judging them for things that you're not even doing yourself? Or why are you putting something on somebody that maybe they don't need? So ask yourself that. Ask yourself, am I creating an environment that is too hard for somebody else to live? And then the last one is just really thinking about, are these things pointing me to God? Are the things that I'm doing actually helping me focus today on Jesus? Are they pointing me to the character of God, to his grace to his mercy, to his faithfulness, to the fact that he is just? Are they pointing me to him so that I am ready to glorify him, that I am amazed by him, and that I can't imagine doing anything other than worship him, or am I creating an environment where it's just a bunch of rules and I'm following them because that's what I'm expected to do? 
That's what everybody around me sees. That's what everybody around me says, well, Dave should be doing this. Dave should be doing that. I should be doing this because that's what everybody expects. I'm going to give you a really, really good example of this that people struggle with a lot. Tithing. Now, this is not a message on tithing and, and you should be giving to the church. This is a message on how you could be using tithing as a way to measure your worth, to judge other people's worth, and maybe it is pointing you to God, maybe it is not. When, when we look at this, this is one of the things that we take from the law, the Old Testament law, we're not under the law anymore, but we still take that and we say, well, we're supposed to give 10%. Then you get in the argument, well, is it 10% of my gross income, 10% of my net income? Do I have to tithe on a gift if I got a birthday present? Do I, am I supposed to tithe on that? And then if somebody else isn't doing exactly what you're doing, you're like, what? Mm, maybe you should think about that a little bit. Okay? <clears throat> when really the whole idea was that we were supposed to be generous, we were both supposed to be sacrificial. I'll be honest with you, for some people, 10% is a crazy amount of money, okay? For some people, 10% would be impacting their ability to live. Other people could stand to give 50, 60, 70%, and they wouldn't notice it. So the question is not how much, but is it sacrificial? Is your heart in the right spot? That's what the law is designed to do. But the Israelites couldn't do it. We can't do it, and God recognized this, and in his unending faithfulness, he said, I'm going to solve this problem for you. I am going to give you Jesus. I am going to take this burden that is unbearable. The law is unbearable. You will never meet the expectation of the law. And Jesus said, I'm going to take that on my, bird, on my back. He said, I'm going to take... All of your inability to meet the law, the expectations that God has, I'm going to take all of your sin, I'm going to put it on my shoulders, I'm going to hang on the cross, and I'm going to die, and that is all going to get buried. And then he is going to raise from the dead, he is going to come out of that victorious over death and end the law for all, forever for good. And then we have the new covenant. The law and the old covenant is no more. Through Jesus, we have the new covenant that we have freedom in. Now, freedom doesn't mean you can do whatever you want and continue to sin. Paul's got a good warning about that. But it does mean that we have freedom in how we are communicating with God. We have freedom in how we are expressing our love for him, our devotion for him. It means we no longer have this burden that we have to follow for our salvation. God loves us. Our sin is done. It's finished. Jesus took care of it. Our salvation is secure through Christ. End of story. It's a beautiful picture of God's unending love and mercy. We no longer have to stand in judgment day in and day out. Through the lens of Christ, when, when God looks at us through Jesus, he sees a holy, sinless individual. That doesn't mean we are holy and sinless, but that's what he sees because Jesus has paid that price for us. 
when we look at what Jesus did in taking the law, taking that burden and throwing it out, we can look at this and we can say, I have a God who loves me. I have a God who knows me. I have a God who cares about me. That while I was still a sinner, he knew I would never live up to his expectation. He knew there was no possible way I could do that. And he found a way to make that work for me. He found a way to bring me to himself and make me holy in his sight, in his eyes. That is a gift that none of us could ever come close to earning. That is a gift that is free for each and every one of us. That is a gift that is unbelievably powerful. And it's that gift that should allow us to say, God, I worship you. Because there is no way that I could ever have done this on my own. There is no way that I could ever deserve what you have done for me. And I know that there's no way I could love him as much as he loves me. And so therefore, I'm just simply devoted to him. And that's what he wants. He wants our undying devotion. He wants our worship. He wants us to glorify him. That's what he's asking for. So once again, God shows his faithfulness, just like he did to the Israelites over and over and over again. They recognized it. And in his undying faithfulness, unending faithfulness, his unending love, his unending grace, his unending mercy, he gave us his son to take that burden of sin from us once and for all. And that's something that both you and I can be eternally grateful for. Let's pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your faithfulness. As we saw the Israelites up and down over and over and over again, I know that we can feel that exact same way in our lives. Father, we, we do great some days and we mess up others and there's days that we feel defeated there's days that we feel like we're not worthy there's other days when we feel like all right i am so excited i'm pumped i am ready i'm I'm wanting to to worship and serve and do all of these things and we just go through these endless cycles but through it all you are faithful to us through it all you show us love you show us your grace you show us your mercy Father, we are just so thankful for that. We ask that our lives would just help others to see who you are and to see your faithfulness in our life. We pray that our lives would be an example to those around us of your love and of your mercy and of your grace. Father, I pray that as we go through this week that we would just look at the things that we've put in our lives Look at the different boundaries, the, the different rules, the different regulations, the things that we've put in our life to help keep us on the straight and narrow. And ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Are we doing it out of love and devotion? Are we doing it out of true worship? Or are we doing it out of this 
need to, to, to meet an expectation? Are we doing it out of the, the, the fear of the consequence? Or help us to keep our focus on you. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus this week. Help us to help others keep their eyes on Jesus. Let us not be a distraction. Let us not allow distractions in our lives to where we're taking that focus from you. Father, we are so grateful for your love in our lives. We're thankful for your, your son, Jesus. And we're thankful that you have loved us while we were still sinners and are still sinners. Father, we are just an amazed people that you have a love that we just simply can't understand. We cannot understand the depths. We can't understand uh, anything about how deep your love runs for us, but we are grateful for it, Lord. Father, we thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we prepare for communion and the Lord's Supper, uh, we invite anybody who is a believer, who has given uh, who has found their salvation in Christ to join with us. Um, but we would ask that you just take a moment and confess your sin before God. Do this with a right attitude, a right heart. And then in a minute, um, you can come up and get the elements, uh, take the bread and the cup and take it back to your seat. And then Parker will come and lead us in communion uh, after a few minutes of reflection. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.